Today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 30. If you've got one of the church Bibles from out the front, it's on page 816. Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, Herodias nursed a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John... He was greatly puzzled, yet he liked listening to him. Finally, the opportunity came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with her request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. 
He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Let's, um, let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Let's pray together. Um, God, we thank you so much uh, that we can be reminded this morning of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we pray that through this series that you would help us uh, to fix our eyes on Jesus and we pray that our picture of him would become clear to us and we pray that you would yeah, help us to see that and help us to see how it changes our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are calling this series, Jesus is Better. Jesus is better, and we're calling it that because of who he is and because of what he's done. We're saying that Jesus is better than anything else. He's better than anyone else, that Jesus stands alone. He is better than everything. Now, we recognize that this is a big claim, right? To say that Jesus is better than anything else and anyone else is a big claim. It's a massive claim, and not just on its own, but because of the world that we live in, because of the country that we live in. You see, if you go around and you ask people the question, who do you think Jesus is? The majority of people aren't going to answer, Jesus is better. In fact, this week, uh, I asked three people, three of my friends who I've been praying for, uh, I asked them, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, the first guy said, uh, Jesus is unreal. I said to him, what do you mean by that? Are you saying he's awesome or he's not real? And he kind of laughed and said, well, it's up to you. So like the rest of our country and lots of other people, the first response I got was Jesus is not real. Second person that I talked to, he took some more time to think about this one. Uh, and I said, okay, who do you think Jesus is? And he replied, okay, Jesus is real and there for you if you want him, but he's not if you don't. So kind of that idea, like he's, he's real, but only if you kind of want him to be real. So that was the second response. And then finally, the third response that I got from uh, my final friend said, Jesus is welcoming and unique and restrictive and overwhelming. Jesus is overwhelming, he's restrictive, he's welcoming, he's unique is what he said. Now, I don't think my friends are alone in this, right? I think that actually what they've replied to me is, is great, is honest, and it's also what kind of captures, I think, our country around us, that people around us think that Jesus is not real, think that Jesus is real if you want him to be, think that Jesus is restrictive or overwhelming, or maybe you've heard Jesus is just a crutch to get you through life. Or Jesus is just one of many ways. Or Jesus is something else. The last thing our world is going to say when you ask them, who do you think Jesus is, is better. People aren't going to say that Jesus is better. So how can we call a series that? How can we confidently say that Jesus is, because of who he is and what he's done, better than anyone and anything else? Well, what we're going to do throughout this series is look at that. We're going to answer that question, and we're going to do that by going to the source. We're going to go to an eyewitness account, 
and see who Jesus is. And as we do that, we're going to start to see that actually he is better and we can have confidence in that. And we're not just going to do this to see who Jesus is. We're going to do this to see uh, because when we see who Jesus is, we're going to recognize that it's actually going to change our lives in some ways. So who is Jesus? Well, we heard it read before, but we'll pick it up again from verse 1 in chapter 6. Mark continues. He says this, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Who is Jesus? Here, who is Jesus? Well, the people at Nazareth think that he's some kind of fraud, right? And we can see that in the questions that they're asking of him. Where did he get this ability? What's he doing? They don't know what game he's kind of playing at here. They're unsure about Jesus, so they take offense at him, and they end up just landing on the fact that he's either a fraud or a liar. Now, I think we can understand their response here. I think we can empathize with this people's response because Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was a really small town. In fact, they reckon there's about 500 people that lived there. So if you grew up in a country town, you know the feeling here, right? Everyone knows everyone else. Everyone knows everyone else's business. And if you don't know them intimately, you at least know that they're that person's son or that person's brother or sister. You know where they fit, right? And these guys all of a sudden are seeing Jesus come back after a little while. And it's kind of like that feeling that we get uh, when we see someone we haven't seen in ages. So, you know, I feel like it's especially true for boys. But when we, uh, you know, we see a, a, a boy growing up, they're small, they have this high voice. You know, they're just running around with the kids. And then, like, we see them again in 10 years' time after a break And all of a sudden they have the deepest voice that you've ever heard and like facial hair and they've grown about five feet in the air. And we we know that, right? We know that feeling. We've got people in our minds who are like that, who do that. And every time we see someone in that situation, we're kind of shocked that they grew in in 10 years. But, But this is kind of the feeling with these people and what they're kind of going through because they saw this guy grow up. Right? They would have had Jesus around to play backyard cricket and seen him ride past their house as he rode home from school. They watched him grow up. They knew where his house was. They knew where he lived and what family he fit in. And now he's back and he's teaching them in the synagogues. Right? He's teaching them in kind of the equivalent of the churches for back in the day and he's teaching them the wisdom of God. Right? So, so see this. The kid that they taught in kids' church is now back speaking to them about the things of God, the wisdom of God, in ways that no one has ever heard before. Can you feel that? Can you see that picture? I mean, what would you think if you were in that moment, thinking through that stuff, seeing that stuff? Would you be excited with what's in front of you or confronted? Well, well, these guys are just skeptical. They're skeptical of Jesus. So they say, you know, we don't know where you got this ability. We don't know what you've been doing, what game you're playing at here. But they reject him. They think that he's some kind of fraud. And so as we read on from verse 4, Jesus quotes them a, a proverb that basically says what we've just talked about. A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. 
Verse 5, he didn't do any miracles there, except actually he did do a few miracles there. He healed some sick people and uh, healed them. And then Jesus, verse 6, was amazed at their lack of faith. And this passage kind of finishes here. Right, Jesus touches on the issue there in verse 6. It's the fact that their problem is here, their lack of faith. Right? They don't trust Jesus clearly. They think that he's a fraud and they reject Jesus. So, so the first people that we see come across who Jesus is, they say of Jesus that he's a fraud. Right? They say that he's a liar, that he's, he's some kind of imposter, that he's a fraud. Now, now, as we read this, Mark is kind of writing so we can have a bit of hindsight here, and we can see the error of their ways here. Right? The problem that these people from Nazareth had was they let their past experience, experiences of Jesus dictate what was presently in front of them. Right? That's what happened here. They let their past experience of Jesus determine what they presently thought about him. And so they said that he was a fraud, not based on what was in front of him, but based on their past experiences. And I know that for some of us here this morning, as we've come to church, we've had a past experience that's been negative in terms of who Jesus is. Whether it was from some kind of weird church, whether it was from people who claimed to be Christians and probably weren't, whether it was just from the hurt that we've been caused, for some of us here today, we have past hurt that determines what we presently see about Jesus. But if we can learn anything from these people in Nazareth, it's that we can't fall into that error. And so hopefully what we're going to see as we walk through this passage and this series is the present picture of who Jesus is. So, so the first picture of Jesus in these first verses, he's a fraud. That's what they think. The second one, well, we pick it up halfway through verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. First response to Jesus, he's a fraud, they would say. Jesus is a liar or something like that. The second response that we see here is actually that Jesus is God. Now, I know that on first reading, there's a few things going on here, and I don't think that's naturally what we kind of land on here. Because as we read this on first reading, the whole thing just sounds weird, right? I mean, Jesus is sending people out and he says to them, don't take anything with you, right? Except a staff, a sandals, and, and just what you're wearing, take nothing else, right? It does sound strange, doesn't it? I mean, this is, you know, this is like going down to Sydney on Tiger Airways, right? You can only take, no, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true, but this is no carry-on luggage, Right? This is not like seven kilograms that you get and you're trying to make it in that bag and so you just end up wearing four layers of clothes and sweat on the plane, but it was worth it because you have three extra. This is not that, right? They get nothing. This is just choose what you've got on and you're going to need a staff because you're going to walk around for a fair bit. Right? That's strange. So why does Jesus tell them this is all they can take? And, and why is their reaction to him kind of like that he's God? 
Well, well, this would be clear to us if we were Jewish people and we grew up actually reading the Old Testament at home and at school over and over again. See, Jews would read this, uh, the Old Testament, over and over again, right? They were trained in it at school. And so what would happen is when they would get to Mark chapter 6, if they read Mark chapter 6, they'd read what Jesus is doing here. And what they would notice is that they've actually seen this thing before. They've seen this exact thing before where someone sends someone out with only sandals, a tunic, and, um, and a staff. And we've seen that before in the book of Exodus, And what Mark is doing uh, here for us and what Jesus is showing us is actually something really cool. And we we, we find out the meaning of this from Exodus. So in Exodus, uh, if you know the story, if you don't, go home and watch Prince of Egypt and catch yourself up on what happens in Exodus. But basically, God's people were in slavery in Egypt. Right? They were in slavery and God wanted to bring them out of slavery into the promised land, right? into a better land. So take them out of the enslaving rule of the Pharaoh and put them under the flourishing rule of God. And as we see that unfold, what we see is that God shows his power and his might to actually make that happen. Now, now things end up uh, getting to the point where it gets to the final night before they go into the, this new land. And what God says to them on this final night is that here are the things that you can take. These are the only things that you can take into the promised land. Three things. Your sandals, the tunic you're wearing, and a staff. Now why does God do this for these people here in Exodus? Well, it's because he wants them to know that their new life is not based on anything they have. Their new life is based on trusting God. Their new life is not based on their finances, not based on what they can bring to the party. Their new life will be based on trusting God. And to get to their destination, all they need to do is trust in God. Now, what we see in Mark, what Mark is showing us and what Jesus is showing us is that here now there is a new era for God's people. A new season for God's people. And this season for God's people would be marked by trusting in Jesus. Right? It would be marked by trusting in Jesus, where we would be trusting in Jesus to get us to our final destination. Where what matters is not our past, where what matters is not what we've done, the hurt we've caused or the hurt we've felt. What matters is simply the future and holding on to the promises of God. And so in this story, what we see is as the disciples go out, they're saying, okay, Jesus here is God. He's the one bringing in this new era. And we're not going to take anything. We're simply going to trust God. We're going to trust him. Right? There is a new season for God's people where all we bring to the table is trusting in him. And so the disciples go out, they teach, they preach, they do miracles, and they have nothing with them. Right? So, so the second response here is they clearly trust God. Now, I, I love that the disciples are the ones that give us this message. Okay, Because as we read through the book of Mark, what we see is that the disciples the whole time don't really get it. Right? They're just like everyone else. They're figuring out who Jesus is. And, and throughout this, um, you can see like even at this point in Mark, the disciples aren't 100% sure. Right? Like they couldn't answer all of the questions. They wouldn't get into a debate with you, right, about some deep philosophical issues. They're not like 100% sure on all this. But what they are sure on is the fact that they can trust Jesus. I think that that brings us some comfort and security just to actually recognize that we don't need all the answers. 
We don't need all the answers to be a Christian. I mean, we do need to be sure about a few big things, like that Jesus is God, like that he died to save from sin. But, but actually what it's about is trusting in him. That's what the disciples show us. They trust Jesus. So first response, he's a fraud. Second response, he's God. And then finally, we get the final response here from verse 14. We pick it up here. Uh, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. Who is Jesus in this last passage? Well, we get a few answers, don't we? I mean, King, the king of the day, King Herod, is trying to figure out who Jesus is as he hears about what he's doing. And so he asks around, right? King Herod goes and does the church survey and says, all right, who do you say that Jesus is? And the first answer that he gets is he's Elijah. He's a guy from the Old Testament that did some cool stuff. He's back. He's doing that again. Some other people say he's just like a prophet from long ago. That's, what, that's who Jesus is. But where does Herod land? Well, he says Jesus is John. That's his answer on who Jesus is, that Jesus is John, and he's back from the dead because Herod killed him. Now, now what happens, I mean, Herod knows that John's dead. From verse 17 to 29, we heard it read before, it really is just the most messed up story I think you'll come across. It's so weird. So um, Herod puts John in prison because he's telling Herod that he probably shouldn't be with his brother's wife. Fair enough, right? I think that's a pretty good thing to say. But he gets put into prison for that. Now, Herod, he wants to kind of kill John, but he's intrigued by John. So you get this kind of, all right, we'll leave him alive. But Herodias, the brother's wife, obviously she held on to the grudge a bit longer and she wants John dead. So Herod throws a big birthday party, has lots of people over, and Herodias' daughter comes out and dances for Herod, right? Weird. That's, that's weird. Um, and then he loves it, even more weird, and says to her, look, that was awesome. Uh, you can have anything you want, including half the kingdom. Now, we're thinking she'll come back and go, okay, give me half the kingdom, right? I'll take that. But instead, she comes back and says, all right, give me John the Baptist dead. And so Herod, because of whatever reason, pressure from the crowds, ends up killing John the Baptist, has him beheaded, and then his disciples come and take him away. Just really weird story on how to go out. The strange death from John the Baptist here. And so Herod, when Jesus, he hears about Jesus doing some big stuff, just goes, okay, it must be John. John the Baptist is back from the dead. But hopefully we can all see, and I'm, I'm really hoping that this isn't going to shock any of us. What Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is not John. Jesus isn't John. In fact, what we see from this passage in Mark is that Jesus is better than John. We get these really cool similarities and differences between John and Jesus here. See, both John and Jesus, they they had some similarities. So both of them, uh, they were well known in their day. Both of them taught a message of repentance, to turn back to God. Both John and Jesus kind of got put into prison for questionable reasons. Both John and Jesus were killed, and then both John and Jesus were buried in a tomb. There's some similarities here, but there's some big differences too. See, John always said the whole time that he was just a prophet, 
John said the whole time that he was not the guy, that actually there was one coming after him who he wouldn't even be able, he wouldn't even be worthy to bend down and tie his shoelaces up. John the whole time pointed people to Jesus and then John died without a purpose. And then he was buried in a tomb and John didn't come back to life. But Mark wants us to see Jesus is different. Jesus is better than John. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed that he could forgive people from sins. Jesus then went to the cross and died for a purpose. He died so that we could have a hope of eternal life. And then Jesus, unlike John, three days later, according to the prophecies written about him in the scriptures in the Old Testament, three days later, rose again and appeared to people, appeared to over 500 people. Jesus is better than John. Jesus is greater than John because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because he's God. And because he died on the cross to be our saviour. Right? You, can, you can see that. Mark is showing us that explicitly here. Jesus is not John. He's better than John. And so we see as we finish off this passage, we see here what these responses to who Jesus is are. Some say that he's a fraud. Some say that he's just a prophet. Some say that he's John. Some say that he's God. And so the question is then for us, as we gather today in this series, as we think about this, the question needs to be for us, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? How do you answer that question? Jesus is what? And not just so that we can get that right, not so that our answer to that question can be well informed and we can see clearly what's in front of us from this eyewitness account, but because how we answer that question will change our lives. You see, if we say that Jesus is a fraud, like the people of Nazareth, then our lives will reflect that we think that Jesus is a fraud. We'll reject him. We'll ignore him. We're not going to listen to him. We're not going to submit to him. We're not going to do anything that he says. If we say he's a fraud, then we're going to reject him. If we say that Jesus is a prophet or that he's like John, then we might take some of his teaching, right? We might take some of his morals. But ultimately, if Jesus is just a prophet, ultimately, we're going to reject him because we're not going to submit to him. We're not going to listen to him and we're not going to live for him. Or finally, we can say that Jesus is Lord, that he's God. But what Mark wants us to see, that if we're going to call Jesus God, what Mark is showing us this morning is that if we're going to call Jesus Lord, he needs to be Lord of all or he's nothing at all. See, throughout this passage, we see clearly Jesus is Lord of everything and we give him everything or he's nothing, and we give him nothing. There's no middle ground here. There's no gray area here. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's nothing at all. Now, we see that in this passage. We see that from the disciples. They go out with nothing, right? They go out simply trusting in God. They don't hold on to their treasures, their possessions, anything they've got. They let everything go, and they trust Jesus with everything. And then we see it with John the Baptist as well. Now, Mark is a really skilled writer here. And what he does is you get this thing where the disciples go out from verse 6 to 13. And then in verse 30, the disciples come back. And in the middle, we get John the Baptist's story of him dying. 
And what Mark is doing there for us is sandwiching this in the middle of these two things to show us the cost of discipleship. Discipleship following Jesus is not just meaning we might let go of possessions, it might even mean that it costs us our lives. John the Baptist dies for telling people about Jesus. John the Baptist dies for pointing people to Jesus. John the Baptist does what Jesus says his disciples will do in a few chapters' time. That whoever wants to follow him must pick up their cross and do so. Following Jesus is an all or nothing thing. There's no middle ground here. It's it's we follow Jesus, we call him Lord, he's Lord of everything, or he's nothing. So, So what does it mean then for us to call Jesus Lord, to give him everything, to go all in for Jesus? What does it mean for us here today in the 21st century in Australia? I think the answer to the question of what it means to go all in for Jesus now is actually quite hard. It's, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. This week, it was interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said that he read this uh, quote in this book. And here's the quote. Uh, the quote says, Living in Western society in 2018 is the hardest time in history to be a thriving Christian. Now, we, we were talking about that a bit, but um, I want you to think about that for a moment. Like, what, what's your gut reaction to that statement? Living now in Australia, in May, in Brisbane, on the south side of Brisbane, right now, is the hardest time in history to be a Christian. What's your gut reaction there? See, my gut reaction in that moment is surely that can't be right. Surely there are more dangerous times in history where it, was, where it was more dangerous to be a Christian. Think about, like, I mean, John the Baptist and the disciples, and the disciples will go on and nearly all of them die for their faith. They lived in dangerous times, right? They, they died for their faith. Then you just think about, I mean, in history, we see this over and over again, right, that there are times and spaces in history where you can't be a Christian and live. I mean, even today, there's places around the world where you can't be a Christian and live. That's my gut reaction to this. But when we were talking about this, he was talking about this, and we started thinking about, okay, why would someone say this? Or how could someone say this? And then when we started looking around to our culture and our community and Australia, and I mean here, the south side of Brisbane, I think there's three things that actually show that maybe this is more true than we realize. See, See, the first reason that it's a difficult time to live in Australia now is because we don't face persecution. Now, now that's kind of contrary to what we feel, what we think, but ultimately, I don't think any of us are genuinely scared that tomorrow we will wake up and die for our faith. Right? I mean, we might face what Jayesh faced in the car where people look down on us, but ultimately, right, ultimately, we're not scared for our lives. So what this means is to live now we don't have this external pressure outside of our homes that are pushing us towards Jesus. It's nearly impossible to wake up each day holding on to the hope of Christ, knowing that if we, don't, if we let go of Christ, we might not get through today. And we desperately need him for everything that we have today. Right? We don't have that external pressure outside of the homes pushing us to Christ. Then, on top of that, we live in probably the most distracting time in history. 
Right? We live so we don't have external pressure pushing us towards Christ, and then we have distractions that push us away from Christ. Right? We, we literally have the world at our fingertips. You know, no longer do we wake up and it's just our homes that provide us distractions. It's just the kids or it's just our workplaces that are going to distract us. Now we pull up our phones, we open our phones, and I can be distracted by what's happening in America, in North Korea, in China, wherever around the world, within seconds of waking up. We have distractions that are pushing us away from Christ. And then even if we don't open our phones up, we get notifications with people trying to contact us. Messages, phone calls, people getting on to us. We feel the need that we need to reply. We get tagged in stuff. We get sent Snapchats. We, whatever it is, right? We get, these, we get these distractions in front of us. Then we go down and we sit and we watch TV. Right now, back in my day, when you watch TV, you just had to watch whatever was on. No longer is that the case, right? You have Netflix and Stan and whatever other recording service it has, and now you can sit in front of TV and watch anything that you actually like without ads. And if you don't find anything you like, you just start again and you just watch what you like over again. And then if you don't find anything you want to watch, you watch YouTube, and then you find yourself just watching something you didn't want to watch in the first place because it was the next video. Right? We, we live in this place of this time of distractions and then we have just everything else that's going to distract us. Everything else that's pulling us away, work pressures, family pressures. We have everything that's distracting us away from Jesus. Right? So living today, we don't have the pressure outside of the homes pushing us towards Christ. We have distractions in our homes pushing us away from Christ. And then the final thing I think that makes it hard is that actually we just live in a culture of entitlement. Now, I know that this is a Generation Y thing. That this is our fault. We want our avocado on toast and we want our homes. Right? That's, it's our fault. But this has bled into our society in the sense that we want it all and we're told we can have it all. We want free speech and the ability to tear someone else's speech apart. We want it all. And this seeps into Christianity in the sense that, right, now we want what the world has and what the world and what Australia and what the south side of Brisbane has on offer and we want what God has on offer, right? We want nice stuff here. We want treasures here. We want recognition here. We want nice homes, nice cars, nice stuff, and we want eternal life. We want treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. And our culture says you can have it all. Right? So we get this. We don't have pressure pushing us towards Jesus. We have distractions pushing us away from Jesus. And then we live in an environment that says it doesn't actually matter anyway. You can have it all. See, I, I don't know if we can actually tell if now is the hardest time in history to be a Christian. But, but I think as we think about the culture we live in, it's far more difficult than we realize. It's a far harder time to be a Christian now than we probably give it recognition to. You can say that you're a Christian and you can not be all in. And there are times in history where you couldn't have done that. You can say that you're a Christian. You can have all the world gives you. Claim that you have Christ as well. And there were times in history where that was never an option. 
So, so as we hear this and as we see this and as we feel the challenge that following Jesus is an all-in thing, what does it mean for us? Well, I think the answer to that question is actually something you have to figure out. Something we all have to figure out. It's conversations that we need to have in our homes. What does it look like for us as a family to be all in? It's conversations in growth groups. It's conversations after church to figure out, okay, what does it mean for me in my present situation to be all in for Jesus? I mean, for some of us here today, it's going to mean really big things. It's going to be big changes that we're going to make. For some of us today, it might, it might mean going overseas and doing mission there. For some of us today, it might mean going to Bible college and studying. For some of us, it might mean with our jobs, making sure that we're actually using that money all in for Christ. Right? Whatever it is, it's going to look different for all of us. But I think there are a few steps that we can take. I think there's two steps before we have that conversation in our homes and think about that for us. The first step that we take is we look to Jesus. We figure out what we think Jesus really is. We, we figure out who we think Jesus really is. We answer that question. And the thing is, what we see is if we say that Jesus is Lord, it's going to change our lives, right? Our lives will react to what we say about Jesus. But the alternate's true as well. Our lives, as we live our lives, if we look at our lives, it says what we think about Jesus, Right? So, so if we say Jesus is Lord, it's going to change our lives, but our lives actually show what we think about Jesus as well. So, so the first step we take is we start with Jesus. We look at him. We see him for who he is. We leave our past negative experiences behind, and we come to him in the word. We see him for who he is. And, and as we do that, it's going to help us in this life as we go all in for Christ. Now, we're going to do that every week here at Southside. I mean, we do it every week. Anyway, but we're going to do it every week in this series. We're going to keep looking at Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to see that he is better than anything else and anyone else. So that's the first step that we take. And the second step that we take is that we realize that we are living not in peace, but in a wartime. That Australia, just because it feels like it, isn't easy to be a Christian. We, we, we start calling it as it is, that this week is actually going to be difficult for us to follow Jesus all in. We call it as it is. We stop pretending like just because we'll be back here next week means it's going to be easy, like Satan hasn't figured out how to get to Australia yet. But, but we have to see this. We have to recognize that it, it is a difficult time to be a Christian. And we have to fight then. See, I think when we start realizing that this week's going to be hard for us to be a Christian, I think it's going to change a few things and a few ways that we think about stuff in our lives. I mean, it's going to change how we think about like Bible reading and prayer. Right? Like if, if this week's easy, I don't need that. But if this week's going to be hard, then I'm going to need God's help in this. Right? You see how that kind of works. It means that when I have kind of dead space at home, that instead of just flicking the TV on or instead of putting music on that, that doesn't point me to Jesus, to actually stop and, and feed ourselves with worship music that points us to Christ. And, and you see, we're going to do this when we start realizing that it's actually a difficult time to be alive. So, so first one, we look to Jesus. Second step, we actually recognize that it's going to be hard this week to follow Jesus. And then we have the conversations in our homes of what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. Let's pray now and then we'll uh, sing about Jesus.
Um, God, help us, we pray in this. We see from the book of Mark and we see from this passage here today that following Jesus is an all-in thing. That there is no gray area here. We pray that you would help us, Lord, because it is difficult in the world that we live in that feeds us the fact that we can have it all, in a world that distracts us from Jesus, in a world that doesn't push us to Jesus. God, we ask for your help in this. We plead for it. And we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to be all in for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.